Welcome to Council 4 Unplugged. This is the podcast of our Council 4 AFSCME Union. We are proud to represent more than 29,000 workers in state government, local government, boards of education, and the private sector. And with me here today, I'm Larry Dorman. Uh, alongside me is Renee Hamill of Council 4. How are you doing, Renee? Great. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. And of course, in the background, doing a great job engineering this production every time is our IT coordinator, Johnny Daly, and we always appreciate his effort. And we have a special guest today. He is a longtime friend of the American labor movement and also our Connecticut labor movement. He is Donald Cohn, executive director of In the Public Interest, a think tank based out of Washington, D.C., that is doing tremendous research and advocacy uh, on behalf of working people and the issues that confront them, particularly around the issue of privatization and outsourcing. Donald, welcome to our show. It's, it's thanks to be back. It's great to have it's you. It's welcome to be back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot to talk about, including uh, a new book that you have authored. So, uh, Renee, why don't you take it away? Yeah, so um, we're really excited to hear more about your book. Uh, which is called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Uh, You're somebody who dedicated your entire life to fighting for the public good. Um, We wanted to know, what does privatization mean to you? Uh, I'm glad you started with that question because, you know, we, uh, we, I define privatization pretty broadly. It's as private power and control over public goods. And what, we, what I mean by public goods is the stuff that we all need, we all rely on, that we can only accomplish and only deliver to everyone equally if we do it together, which means through, you know, with government involvement, with public involvement. So those are sort of these public things like education and clean air and libraries and open spaces and transportation and public health, which, you know, the list could go on. And privatiza- so privatization happens in a few, you know, few different ways. Um, if you, you know, outsourcing, we, we know a lot about that, contracting out public work or selling off an asset like a road or a bridge or a school or a, or a, you know, or a water system. But it's also when we don't adequately fund public services and we leave people to, to deal with their basic needs, basic public, you know, essential needs through the market, you know, on their own. Uh, and it's also when we don't adequately regulate um, you know, health, some of those things like health and safety and work, work, workplace safety, because, you know, if a, if a, say, if a workplace is unsafe, it's got toxic emissions or what have you, for example, then that private owner has control at some level over the life of the worker. So as I say, that's when I go back to it's, you know, private and control over public goods. So that's, that's how we think about it. Um, and, you know, often we're, you know, we're told, oh, the market can do everything better, right? You know, in free enterprise, the market, we hear it all the time. But it, here's, here's the thing is, I think there are public things um, that need to be dealt with publicly. And there are things that can be dealt with in the market. But the market is simply the wrong thing uh, to do to, to, on its own to, to deliver public goods. It's like using a hammer to cook your eggs it's just the wrong thing um you know markets sell things to people who have to consumers to people who have money to institutions have money if you don't have money you can't buy the thing um markets so markets you know create competition and they exclude 
we need, you know, public goods need to be universally accessible to everyone and equally. It should not cost, it's not, uh, you, you should not get better health care um, if you have more money, for example, you know, to give example. Right, right. Um, and what you're saying, of course, Donald, is that um, uh, framing of the public good should be determined you know, by the public and what the public values and less by the free market. Well, I, I take it one step further. That's right. But not just values, democracy. We ought to be able to decide what we think everyone needs and should have. That's a democrat. That should be a democratic decision, not a not a decision by the powerful or the decision by corporations. So we can determine that everyone should have health care. That's a decision. That's a democrat. That's you know dem democratically, we can determine democratically that everybody should be able to get a letter mailed to every home in America for the same cost. So it's really about democracy and privatization. You know, at its core, I really believe is an assault on democracy. Right, because it's obviously taking, uh, essentially, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but taking power away from people, putting it into corporations and investors who are not necessarily acting in the public interest. Right, exactly. And, it's, and listen, I, I, it's not their job. Corporations do one right. thing. They, they sell things. Yeah. And so that's, and you know, we buy things, so it's fine. Mm -hmm. But these aren't things that, we're not consumers of public services. We're citizens and residents with rights and responsibilities. And so it shouldn't depend on whether we consume these services, it should depend on whether we think everyone should have them. And that's, it's, no, it's never gonna be in the interest of a corporation to give things away for free. Right. That's fine. Right. And we've seen um, during the COVID-19 pandemic how the free market has um, played out as far as a lot of the procurement of things um, with the vaccine, um, I was wondering if you can explain that and how you think the pandemic has um, highlighted this fight to strengthen and protect the public good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it feels like the beginning of the pandemic was a whole other century right now, given the pace of our lives. But, you know, when and Trump was the president um, and you know, their first response, him and Jared Kushner and all the, you know, the experts and, you know, the folks, not experts, but the folks in the White House said, let's just let the market solve this, right? That was their first response, meaning that um, uh, states should look around the country and, you know, do their own shopping for PPE and for testing and all that. So you had states competing with one another and with the federal government and, and companies that were selling the stuff were, you know, we're selling them at different prices and, you know, you know, working one customer, one potential customer off or another. It was crazy. It was insane. So what was clear at the beginning, you know, to all of us is clear to at least to now is that everybody's in. Number one, everyone needs, you know, needs to get vaccinated. Everyone needed to wear masks. Everyone needed to be you know, kept healthy. So that you can only do if we do it together. If we do, you know, if the government sets rules, if the government, uh, you know, you know, used the Defense Production Act to say business, you know, businesses that were able to convert, and you know, like we did during World War II, to the creation into the development of tests or PPE or whatever, ventilators or what have you, they should do that. That that you know that was a public responsibility that can only be dealt with 
with public authority. But the other thing I think that it exposes a great, I mean, a couple other things exposed. One is that investment in science, investment in, uh, was key, was actually key to helping come up with public investment in science starting in the 90s was key to uh, sequencing the, the DNA or the RNA of the virus very quickly. That came from public investment early on. Um, the, uh, the, the, another issue became, I'm just uh, staying within that realm, is that who controls the patents of those things? The private company, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, you know, they were controlling the patents of the stuff that we were paying for. And that was excluding other countries from getting access, other companies from making the vaccine quickly so that we can get the vaccine out. So there was a, so, that, you know, it's clear that we need to, you know, have, have control over that intellectual property. We paid for it anyway, but regardless of that, it was a vital public health need. Um, and uh, finally, I just think the, you know, the, the lack of investment in scientific infrastructure in physical infrastructure, and then particularly in the public health infrastructure. We weren't ready, we weren't ready. And if you don't have contract tracer, you know, institutions, public institutions that can quickly flip to contract tracing or, uh, or vaccine production or whatever the things we need, uh, we're in trouble. And we have disinvested in our public health system over the last 20, 30 years, you know, to, you know, to clearly a disastrous level for the hundreds of thousands of people who've died. Right, and and before I go to the next question, Donald, you just you got you always get me thinking about so many issues that are going on in this country. But um, you know, not just the investment in, in healthcare services, right? But you know, privatization obviously spurs deinvestment or disinvestment. I should say disinvestment in um, public services overall, so that public institutions um, are not prepared and um, and their workers are being kind of put on the front lines at great risk to themselves because we don't have enough staff in uh, public agencies because we don't have enough protective equipment. We don't have protocols in place. I think that's all a consequence of this massive disinvestment in public services, which is obviously triggered by uh, folks who don't like labor unions and um, folks who advocate privatization. That's right. And, and just helpful to remember that there were deadly consequences to that disinvestment mm -hmm. deadly you know in the right. u.s and around the world it was it's not abstract right. it's very real that that lack of investment has cost people's lives right and um you know i always think back to uh, 2005 and uh, Hurricane Katrina and, and what happened to the people of New Orleans. Was, I had the opportunity to go down there um, not long after that and, and talk to folks who were impacted. And um, That's always stuck in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, our guest today is Donald Cohen. He's the executive director of In the Public Interest, which is a national nonprofit research and policy organization. Uh, In the Public Interest studies and advocates for strong and adequately funded public goods and services. Uh, we're really happy to have Donald here today, and uh, we want to talk to him as well about a new book that he is co-authored um, with Alan McCallion. It's called The Privatization of Everything. How the plunder of public goods transformed America, and how we could fight back, and would urge our listeners to read it. And Donald, when we talk about how privatization and disinvestment in public services has hurt people, um, the, the first in the first chapter of your book, you connect how privatization 
propels systemic racism. Can you explain how those things are interconnected? Uh, sure. So, so um, even just going back to what I was talking about with respect to markets, you know, markets exclude. That's the, you know, they, and they create competition. They're not inclusive. So take that notion and, uh, and take it to uh, structural racism and democracy. You know, we have a, you know, we are all very familiar of the history of exclusion for, um, you know, slavery is the power of a quote owner over an enslaved person. Jim Crow gave power over employers and others Oh, you know, whether folks had access to this or that, you know, you can go down the list, housing policy and other things. So there's, so there's sort of a pattern of exclusion here. Um, so unequal voice. So if you, if there's unequal voice um, and unequal power, then that gives some folks more power over public goods than others. So that's at the sort of the 30,000 foot level. And we know who those are, but I think what, you know, it's kind of an interesting story is, um, Privatization in the, you know, was a, of public schools in particular, was a reaction uh, by segregationists in the 50s to Brown versus Board of Education and the effort to, you know, toward, efforts towards integration. When that happened, um, segregationists and, and certain states passed voucher school voucher policies. Some were found unconstitutional. Ultimately, they 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 basically exited the system and created private schools and what were referred to as segregation academies. They wanted to get away from black people. Um, similar things happened in public swimming pools. You know, Heather McGee's written a fabulous book that that goes into this as well. Um, when black people were, you know, when it, when were we're not allowed to be excluded from public swimming pools. Public swimming pools in racist areas literally shut down because uh, segregationists didn't want to be in the same water. And so that shifted to private pools, that had shifted to individual pools and backyards. And so you can kind of see over and over again how if, you're, if we are consumers of individual services, mm -hmm. um, then our interests are not tied together. As, we, as they are when they're citizens. I'll only pay for what I'm going to use, and I don't want to pay for those people. So, you know, there's structural and systemic racism that's deeply embedded in the culture and in policy and politics and all that. And because uh, privatization helps to uh, separate us, stratify us, segregate us, I think that's, uh, it, you know, you can see it in all different directions. Uh, disturbing, but very interesting. Thank you. Renee. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I'm glad that you brought up that, you know, the history of some of these school vouchers and school choice programs have been um, because of uh, systemic racism. So um, you came to Connecticut to help us out um, a couple of years ago with our Yukon Health Center. Uh, our members that work there, they've been a part of a uh, localized fights for public control of public goods. That's one example. Um, but we've also had um, our paid family medical leave program, which is administered by AFLAC, um, is a, a, an issue for us with privatization. And in Bristol, we won a fight um, to stop privatization of cafeteria workers. 
We'd like to know how can members join with the community to persuade our elected officials that it's important to keep our public services in the public sphere and that this is beneficial for everyone. Yeah, it's a really important question. So, you know, I'm going back to that word control, public control. So, you know, we did some public opinion research a number of years ago. Uh, I may have shared that with folks one of the times I was up there. Um, people, you know, ordinary folks may not know who the person that picks up the, you know, the sanitation worker or the, even the healthcare worker, who they get their paycheck from, but they know what's a public service and what they ought to have, right? And so really important for people to understand but and, and they may not even be aware that or, 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 even though what i just said you know they may not even be aware that oh um oh the water that comes out of the tap oh yeah there's public workers who are work, who, you know who, you know it's a magic right we don't think about it when the water comes out of the tap or we flush the toilet so i think the first and most important thing that we need to do with our allies and uh, and, and community is to reconnect people with the services that they rely on every day, but that to some, even though they're ubiquitous, they're also invisible. They also feel invisible, right? We all, you know, drive on the roads. Now, when we say, when we say oh, well, the roads are public, people may not think first, oh, roads, potholes and traffic and all that. But we need to say, it's not just about the roads, it's about our ability to, to move move goods, move people, go to work, go to school. So we need a transportation system. And the so first establish what we, what we think are those public goods that we all need, that we all rely on together. And then next, remind people as public workers, right? For AFSCME members and other public sector members, is you're the folks who do it, right? You do it every day. You do good things, you mess up, you're human, right? Everybody, it's like, it's a, you know, the world's a complicated individual at the individual level, but it's, it's, you know, public workers have been vilified by conservatives and the right wing and the anti-union folks for a long time. But every day, I guarantee it, every day your members are doing cool things for people. Every day. And what I think doesn't happen is my experience in the labor movement enough is that our, you know, your members and, and other unions and other public sector workers is tell those stories enough. We let the bad stories live without telling the good stories, whether it's the postal worker who, you know, pulled in the trash can for the senior citizen as he or she was walking by, or it's the, the scientist who figured something out, or it's the, you know, I mean, or the librarian who looked up, uh, you know, uh, you know, helped a young kid with their homework or whatever it is, but literally every one of your members is doing something that helps the public. And everyone I've talked to is, is, is proud of it. And everybody outside your members doesn't know what they do. You're so tr so correct on that, and it, you know it's funny because it for me it goes back when we it was a multi year battle, but we stopped uh, a private company Whitson's from taking over uh, food service and cafeteria uh, service in the Bristol Connecticut school system. Um, but it wasn't until that fight happened and our members. Um, were courageously going to board of ed meetings um, to, to address the people who wanted to put them out of work and it would share their stories about how they impact kids, how they constantly reach into their own pockets to pay for lunch, um, how they went the extra mile, how they made sure kids were safe and healthy. Um, so you're right. We, we really do need to tell our stories 
probably but, in a louder and more coherent fashion. Well, and the cafeteria workers, I mean, a, a person who works in a cafeteria, at least when I was a kid, which was a very long time ago, you know, the, the cafeteria worker was our neighbor. I mean, it's that yeah. one thing, right? right? But it's not just about, it's not about just like giving someone food they bought. That That's not what's going on in that environment. It's people who work at the cafeteria, who know the kids, who know their, you know, what they don't like and what they do like, who, you know, who see when they're upset, who, you know, there's a community component to this that's, that's, that, that's not incidental. It's fundamental to what we're doing. We are feeding kids. We're, we're helping them be healthy. We're helping them study and you know, attend to school better in the afternoon after they eat. <laughs> um, we're, we're doing all those things. We're part of the education of those kids. We're not just, you know, we're not just an, a vending machine. Right, right. And just going back to Renee's uh, previous question, she mentioned the Yukon Health Center. Uh, we are seeing in Connecticut uh, increasing mention of the phrase public-private partnerships. And we wanted you to explain what that is and why it's actually why it may sound innocuous. It's a really damaging concept. Yeah, well, it's a, it's used in lots of different contexts, you know, because it's because it does sound so good and it definitely sounds better than privatization to the public. Right. It's it's privatization. So infrastructure is a lot of, you know, roads and bridges and water systems and buildings and all that's a lot of where you hear you know, the majority of where you hear public-private partnerships, or P3 for short. Um, it's essentially, um, and there's different versions of it, so I'll try to be simple. I'll give an example of it. It's a, it, you know, it's a water system. It's a, a, new, a new water treatment plant that normally we would, you know, borrow, a public agency would borrow money, build the plant, charge ratepayers, and public operations. Simple, smart, and good. But P3s or public-private partnerships will say, well, the private company will come in and they'll build it they'll, and, they'll, and they'll use their money to build it. And when they use their money to build it, they'll also get control of it and operate it and maintain it for 40 or 50 years. So, and, you know, and, you, and we see that in water systems and bridges and actually in public schools now. We saw that, you know, there was a potential case in Connecticut, I think it was in Stanford that, that we helped stop some of your, yes. you know, some of your allies and your, and, and your members. But here's the most important thing is that if the if the private company is you know, running and operating and have financed your water system that everybody needs, clean drinking water, in that long-term contract, they will have authority over things that matter to us. Number one, conservation, health, all that things. And going back to what I said earlier is most important thing for them is, you know, they sell things. That's what they, that, not most important thing is that's what they do. They sell things. So what do they measure? Sales, net profit, costs, and market share. That's, that's what companies do. So it's in their interest to spend less and get more, right? And so they will cut corners on things that matter to us. Now, we may end up, public may end up with not enough money either, but we don't have to pay the 10, 12, 30% rate of return to their investors, right? So I think when you see the word P3, it's one is we're, I'd say two things in some, two or three things in summary. One is we're basically paying some, you know, they're using their money, which means we're not using public cheap money. We're using expensive private investor money Two, we're actually giving them authority over things that we should public should have democratic authority over. We're giving it to them for a long time. Um, 
and it's and therefore it's tying our hands into the future and these contracts are super long you know like i said decades long and very rigid and inflexible and the public needs flexibility in particular in these times of climate change and you know the, the world's a complicated place right thank you well, your book, um, it seems to be, it's going to be a great education tool for our members and the public. What ways do you see that the book can help motivate uh, union members and the public to engage in the issue of protecting public goods and fighting back? Um, I think similar, similar to what I was saying a little earlier, it's, you know, people who go to work every day, they go to work, they go home, they put food on the table, they're struggling, it's, you know, it's hard. And, and then threats come in to outsource their work or they don't have enough resources because of tax cuts or refusal to spend, you know, refusing to spend money that you do have on, uh, you know, on work wages, working conditions and, and, and availability of services. So I actually believe it's really helpful for people to step back and see the bigger picture of what they provide for what they do for all of us. Number one, right? That their role is about making the country a better place. It doesn't feel like that when you punch the clock in the morning, but it's, you know, you're just going to work, but it's, but it's, but it's vital. You're the, you know, your members, remember there's 20 million people who work for government in America. They should be the loudest voice for public goods and services um, in unison, not in unison, but loud and clear and not just about the job of the day, but about the value, the idea of public, the importance of public institutions. And, um, you know, and what, uh, you know, and, and what they do. And then likewise, it's also important for people to see the pieces put together about how what's going on is not just a company wants to outsource your job. They want to take over public goods and services overall. So there's a bigger picture to understand the who and the what's really going on and how that will affect our democracy, how it affects our country, how it affects all the things we care about, our health, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's real value in having that bigger picture. And because I think it gives people some, you know, some more tools and weapons to feel emboldened to fight, understanding where we're going. Um, and, you know, and, and, and plenty of examples to use to show where this doesn't work. You know, there's lots of examples in the book was to show how, you know, privatization of all kinds of different things have really, uh, you know, uh, not worked at all, to say the least. Well, I know Larry and I are dying to read your book, and so are our, our members um, and those that are listening. Uh, the book is called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Tell us where uh, our listeners can find the book. So what I'm suggesting folks do to buy it is the first thing. First step is to call, you know, look up or call your local or closest independent bookstore because they're suffering as well from the chains or Amazon and all that. And, you know, that are important parts of the community and ask them to pre-order it. It's out in the middle of November. So that's the first step and they'll do it. They're all connected. There's an independent booksellers association. Uh, and if not that, what I've been sending folks to is bookshop.org. It's, um, it's sort of the, you know, it's the, it's the community friendly version of Amazon. Most of their profits go back into independent bookstores and to the book authors. And so it's a really friendly way to buy the book and you can pre-order there right now as well. 
So, you know, the other benefit, of course, of calling your independent bookstore is they might say, oh, this is a, they may, it may make them interested enough to carry it. Uh, this is my first book, so I don't know how those things happen. But I assume that if some, uh, you know, some, a neighbor calls a bookstore and says, could you carry this book? That could probably help. Great. Well, we're excited about this latest project of yours. We appreciate the important work you're doing um, at, in the public interest. And our guest has been Donald Cohen, executive director of In the Public Interest. And we have been talking about his new book, uh, The Privatization of Everything. And it's important reading. And Don, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy life to, to join us. We appreciate it. Yeah, I always enjoy talking to you, Larry and Renee, and 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 plus enjoy the work I've done in Connecticut with with y'all. So well, I'll be back. Sounds like we have a lot more to do with you. <laughs> so <laughs> you have been listening to Council for Unplugged. I want to thank Renee Hamill, our co-host, Johnny Daly, our producer and engineer. Of course, thank Donald Cohen again for uh, joining us on this call. And remember, you have been unplugged. We'll see you next time. Thanks. As always, thanks for listening to our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms by searching for Council 4 AFSME. Our website is council4.org. My name's Larry Dorman, and you've been Unplugged.